What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the things that is unique about the Gospel of John are the seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself, ultimately declaring himself to be God in these seven different ways. And um, now in John chapter 10, we're blessed to have two of those statements in one chapter. And last week we looked at the first one where Jesus said that he is the door. Uh, and, you know, we noted that Literally, in the country sheepfold, there, there is no door, and the shepherd himself was the door. He would sit there, and so the sheep, to come in and out of the sheepfold, they would have to go past the shepherd or over the shepherd, and so he could keep them from coming in and out if he needed to, but also he could protect them from any wild animal that would try to get in the sheepfold. They would have to come through the shepherd, and so Jesus is the door. Uh, and right after he revealed that he is the door, he makes a, a wonderful uh, statement that declares what he means when he says that. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And last week we looked at three important things that, you know, that statement reveals about Jesus, the door. First, Jesus is the door of salvation. If you want to be saved, you have to enter by him. Second, Jesus is the door of safety. He's the one who allows you to go in and out. He's the one who protects the sheep. And third, Jesus is the door of satisfaction. He helps us find pasture. And he goes on to say that he gives life and gives it more abundantly. He's the one who gives true satisfaction to life. Now, last week, we also noted that Jesus takes this uh, contrast of him being the door, the shepherd, and all the things that he declares about that with the religious leaders and showing that, that they are the opposite of that. He calls them thieves and robbers that they come to steal and kill and destroy. And so Jesus comes to give abundant life. They come to ultimately take and take life from people. Now, right after Jesus gives this contrast between himself and the religious leaders, he's going to give another wonderful I am statement that we're going to look at this morning. It's one of my favorite ones of all the seven that he declares in the Gospel of John, and that is, I am the good shepherd. Now, there are many reasons that Jesus could have declared for why he's the good shepherd. If we just wanted to do a study through the scriptures and just look at, you know, what are things that we see in the life of Jesus that would make him the good shepherd? You know, we would have quite a long list. But Jesus himself decides, I'm just going to share one main reason why I'm the good shepherd. And I would say it's the most important reason why Jesus is the good shepherd. And he's actually going to say it in verses 11 through 18, five different times. Over and over again, he emphasizes this one main point so that his listeners and us today wouldn't miss why he is 
the good shepherd. And after that, he's going to contrast this main reason why he is the good shepherd with the religious leaders and the main reason why they are not good shepherds, but in fact are bad shepherds. And the second thing we're going to look at this morning is who are Jesus' sheep? He's going to share with us that reality. If, If he's the good shepherd, who are his sheep? And then finally, we're going to look at two different responses to this, you know, pretty, you know, (laughs) bold statement. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. How are people going to respond to Jesus's claims about himself? And so let's start by looking at what Jesus says is the main reason why he is the good shepherd. And I'm going to read all of verses 11 through 18. And I want you to note what Jesus continues to repeat in these verses about himself. Let's start in verse 11. It says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As a father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. So the main reason that Jesus gives to us of why he is the good shepherd is the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, Jesus could have focused on on many reasons why he's a good shepherd, but he chooses this most important one. He gives his life for the sheep. Now, after making this wonderful statement, Jesus tells us four different times how he gives his life for the sheep. Notice he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. Four different times he makes this powerful statement that he doesn't want us to miss. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, when we look at the circumstances around Jesus' death, you know, we often see him as a helpless victim. If you were to interview people in a church and you would ask the question, who is responsible for Jesus' death? You know, and those who were familiar with the gospel accounts, they would probably come up with different answers to you. Some might start with Judas the betrayer. He's responsible for Jesus' death. Others might say, no, 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 the high priest, you know, that's the one who's ultimately responsible when Jesus was on trial. And he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? Crucify him. He's the one responsible for Jesus' death. Others would say, well, actually, just the religious leaders as a whole, they always wanted him dead. And then when they have the opportunity, Pilate says, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? They say, release to us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. So it's the high priests who are guilty of it. And others would say, well, wait a second. The Jews didn't even have the power to kill people. The only one who had that authority was Pontius Pilate. So he's the one guilty. He could have chosen not to crucify Jesus, but he has him crucified. And others would say, well, actually, the soldiers who did the scourging, who did the beating, who did the actual crucifixion, those are the ones who are the ones who actually are responsible for Jesus' death. But you know what? There's a common theme with all those answers. Bad people were responsible for Jesus' death. 
that bad people wanted Jesus dead, and Jesus was a helpless victim that they killed. Yeah, this is a common way that people kind of look at the crucifixion, look at you know what Jesus went through and the death that he suffered, that Jesus was a helpless victim and his life was taken from him. But I want you to understand that is not what happened. If that's your view, if that's how you see you know, the death of Jesus, you see the crucifixion, then that is not an accurate biblical view of what transpired. You see, something very important to understand as you look at the circumstances surrounding Jesus' crucifixion, surrounding his death, is that Jesus was not a helpless victim. Jesus says four times, I lay down my life. And then he gets very specific because he wants us to know what he means by that. When he says, I lay down my life, what's he talking about? What does he want us to you know, understand from that statement? Notice he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. You know, something so important for us to understand is that nobody could take Jesus's life from him unless he allowed them to do it. You know, this is something that you see throughout the Gospels as you look at the arrest and the trial of Jesus. It's not something that's, you know, maybe as clear or, you know, as out there as, you know, some other things. But, but it's seen if you go through it, like even in the Gospel of John, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, they ask, you know, Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And we're told right when he says those words that the soldiers are knocked over. Just the words of Jesus had the power to knock them down. Now let's realize who we're talking about here. Jesus is the one who spoke the world into existence. If he wanted to, he could speak these soldiers into non-existence quite quickly. He could have easily spoke and obliterated them on the spot because that's the kind of power that he has. You know, right after the soldiers come and arrest Jesus, Peter, wanting to prove that he won't deny Jesus, he whips out a sword, he tries to chop this guy's head off, he misses and just gets his ear. But Jesus says something to Peter that's very important. He says, put away your sword. Do you think I cannot ask my father and he will provide me 12,000 legions of angels? Hey, Peter, what Jesus is saying, I don't need you to protect me. If I wanted to be protected from these soldiers, if I wanted someone to defend me, all I'd have to do is ask, and there would be legions and legions of angels coming down to fight for me and to protect me. I don't need your protection. I have it if I want it. Now, after Jesus is arrested, he goes through these different trials with religious leaders, and they finally bring him before Pontius Pilate, the man who ultimately has the authority and the power to crucify Jesus. And as Jesus is standing before Pilate, they're having this conversation and Jesus is speaking with them. And, and Pilate comes to the cl- conclusion, Jesus is not deserving of death. And he goes back out to the religious leaders, tries to convince them, and there's no convincing them. Now Pilate's kind of in a catch-22, and so he comes back to Jesus and he you know, tries to get more information. And Jesus doesn't respond to him anymore. And then Pilate says this to Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? You see, Pilate thinks, hey, I have all the power here, Jesus. If I want you dead, you're dead. If I want you alive, you're alive. I have all the power over your life. And then Jesus needs to correct Pilate's very false view of the circumstances that he has. And Jesus says, you could have no power at all against me 
unless it had been given you from above. You know, Pilate really at that time was the most powerful man in Israel. You know, he's the Roman governor. He has the power of Rome in his disposal. But you know what? He did not have power over Jesus' life. He could not take Jesus' life from him if Jesus did not allow it to happen. And Jesus wants to make real clear to Pilate, the only reason you have power is because it's been granted to you from God. So I want you to understand something, that Jesus had power in himself to stop or destroy the soldiers that were seeking to arrest and ultimately kill him. He could have called thousands of angels to defend him and protect him at any moment. There was no one on earth who had power enough to take Jesus' life from him unless he gave it to them. And that is why Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. So the answer to the question, who was responsible for Jesus' death? It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the high priest. It wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't any of the people that we mentioned before. None of those people had the power to take Jesus' life from them unless he gave them that power. So ultimately, the reality is the person responsible for Jesus' death was Jesus himself. Jesus chose to lay his life down. No one took it from him. He willingly sacrificed himself. Now, that doesn't absolve all these others who sought to kill him, who wanted his death. They're guilty of that, but they are not capable in their own power of actually following through. You know, they wanted his death, but they couldn't have taken it if Jesus didn't allow it. And he did allow it because he willingly laid down his life for you and for me. Now, fortunately, the story doesn't end with just Jesus dead. Jesus willingly laying down his life, and that's the end of it. Jesus goes on to say, there's something else I'm going to do. Not only do I have the power to lay down my life, but I also have the power to take it up again. Jesus is revealing the amazing power that he has. He's speaking of the resurrection. And I want you to think about this power. I'm so powerful, nobody can take my life from me. There's no one, no one, I don't care if he's the emperor of Rome to anyone on earth, no one has the power to take my life from me. I must willingly choose to lay it down in order for me to die. And I'm so powerful that even if I choose to lay down my life, I can take it back again. I have the power to resurrect myself from the dead. You know, we live in the age of superhero movies. Some of the most, the largest grossing films of recent times are the, the Marvel movies. And, you know, many people love Marvel, a lot of love X-Men, very few love DC. But, you know, there's, you know, just kind of the, 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 you know, superhero genre. And there's oftentimes this kind of debate is who's the most powerful of the superheroes. And, and usually as that debate goes, it's kind of the people will match them up with the other and like, well, who would win in a fight? You know, ultimately who could kill who? And, and then you kind of come to your conclusion as, you know, who's more powerful, Superman or, or maybe Captain Marvel or Thanos or, or whoever you're going to come to the conclusion with. But, you know, Think if this, you know, person was a superhero and there was nobody who could kill him. You know, they had no uh, person who was powerful enough to take their life. And the only way they could die is if they chose to. They say, you know what, I can lay down my life whenever I want, but that's the only way someone could take my life from me. But you know what, 
I'm also so powerful that the next movie I could pop in again because I can resurrect myself at any moment. And obviously we would look at, hey, that's the most powerful superhero there is. Now, these debates are kind of silly because these are all, you know, things that don't actually exist. These superheroes, sorry for some of you who believe in them, they're not real. But you know what? Jesus is. He truly does have the greatest power ever. Nobody can take his life. And yet if he willingly gives it, he also has the power to bring himself back from the dead. His power is unbelievable and unmatched. And we need to understand the power of Jesus because it greatly impacts the way in which we look at the crucifixion. It greatly impacts the way in which we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is not the tragic story of a helpless victim that many people see it as. Instead, it's the tremendous story of a voluntary victor. You see, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. It was not taken from him. He voluntarily said, you know what? I will take the sin of the world. I will take the judgment of that sin upon himself. It was not forced on him. And then through his amazing power, he rose from the dead and he gained victory over sin and over death. Sin and death did not conquer Jesus. Jesus conquered them. So as you look at Jesus' death on the cross, remember, it's not the tragic story of a helpless victim who had his life taken from him. Instead, it's the tremendous story of a voluntary victor who gave his life and rose it from the dead. You know, and that truth makes Jesus' death and resurrection for us all the more amazing, all the more significant. You see, it's one thing for you to be willing to die when you don't have the power to stop people from killing you. You know, that's still impressive that you'd be willing to die, but, you know, if you don't have the power to stop people from killing you, you know, whether you want to or not, the end result is you're going to be dead. It's one thing to be a, a willing, helpless victim. But it's something completely different when no one has the power to take your life and you still willingly sacrifice it. Completely different when you're a voluntary victor. You know, it's one thing to endure mockery and beating and scourging and crucifixion when you don't have the power to stop it from happening. But it's completely different when you endure that mockery and that beating and that scourging and that crucifixion when you have all the power in the world to stop it from happening. You know, as Jesus was being mocked, he could have stopped everything from happening. As Jesus was being whipped over and over and the skin was getting ripped off his back and the pain was excruciating, he had the power to stop it at any moment. As he was being nailed to the cross... He could have stopped that at any moment. He wasn't forced by anyone in any of these things. His life wasn't taken from him. He willingly laid it down. Why? Ultimately, because of his love for you, his love for me. That's what drove him to it. No one was powerful enough to take his life. He laid it down because he loves us so much. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. When, ordinary, when any ordinary man dies, he only pays the debt of nature. If he were even to die for his friend, he would simply pay a little earlier that debt, which he must pay ultimately. But the Christ was immortal. 
And he needed not to die except that he put himself under the covenant bonds to suffer for his sheep. Here's another thing that maybe we don't often think about. All of us are going to die. Yeah, that's just a reality of it. If I die for my family, if I die for you, all I'm doing is speeding up what I ultimately will have happen to me eventually. But Jesus, he's immortal. He was never having to die. He could have lived and never, ever experienced death, never tasted death, never had to go through all those things. But he chose to leave the throne of heaven, to become one of us, to live a sinless life, to suffer a horrible death for your sin and for mine, because he loves us. He didn't have to ever experience that, but he chose to because his love for you and me. And something else important that we need to understand is this wasn't some spare-of-the-moment decision. It wasn't like, well, Jesus gets arrested, and he's like, "Ah, maybe I'll give my life, I'm not sure yet. And then all of a sudden, you know, he goes through a scourging, and he's still not quite there, and then he finally says, yeah, I think I'll sacrifice myself for the sin of the world. Notice Jesus goes on to say, this command I have received from my Father. And what Jesus is bringing up here is this isn't some, you know, spare of the moment thing. This is something that was planned far in advance of me ever coming to this earth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had this plan that, you know what? The sin of mankind has to be dealt with. And Jesus Christ is going to come to this earth. He's going to become a man. He's going to live that sinless life. He's going to give his life on a cross. And he is going to pay for the sin of the world. You know, the Old Testament is full of prophecies that foretell of this event. And so God was telling everybody, this is coming. You know, I have it planned. It's not like he's going to show up and then just decide, spare the moment. No, this is something that's already planned, and I'm warning you, it's coming. It's coming. One of the greatest passages in the Old Testament that kind of deals with that is Isaiah 53. And not only is this a wonderful prophecy, you know, telling us what Jesus is going to do for us, but it also refers to us as sheep. Just as Jesus is referring to us here in this passage, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So another thing to remember is Jesus didn't just kind of do this last minute. He loved us so much that before he ever came, what motivated him to leave the throne of heaven was his love for you and me. And the plan was always to end with his death and resurrection, to end with him sacrificing his life for your sin and for mine and to take the judgment that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. So the main reason that Jesus gives us for why he's the good shepherd is because he lays his life down for the sheep. No one took it from him. He willingly gave it. Now, there are all sorts of other reasons that Jesus is the good shepherd, but this is by far the most important, the most significant, the greatest one of all. You know what? This would actually have been seen as remarkable. For those who knew of shepherds and those who knew of sheep and shepherd relationships, for Jesus to make this declaration, that wouldn't have just been seen as, that's a good shepherd. That would have been an amazing shepherd. Because even at that time, shepherds would put their life, you know, at risk because, you know, they wanted to protect their sheep from wild animals and from thieves. But if a shepherd would know, hey, you know what? This wolf will kill me and it's between me and the sheep. 
Typically, the shepherd would say, you know what? I'm sorry I have one less sheep. You know, I'm not going to die for the sheep. If he actually knew it. Now, obviously, he might be fighting this wolf and, and thinking that he could be victorious and end up dying. But if he knew beforehand, this is going to end my life, most shepherds probably would say, you know what? I can get more sheep. I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice the sheep and not myself. But to be willing to say, I'll die no matter what for these sheep would be like, man, that's not just a good shepherd. That is an amazing shepherd. And that is why God and what he's done for us is so amazing. But now Jesus, as he's done already with the door, is going to contrast that with the religious leaders. I'm the good shepherd. And now let me tell you what the religious leaders are like. Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So Jesus has already referred to himself as, as this good shepherd. And the reason he's so good is because he lays down his life for the sheep. And now, once again, he points out how the religious leaders, what kind of shepherds they are. And he says, well, actually, they're not even shepherds at all. You know, they're just hirelings. Now, hirelings were basically hired hands that a shepherd would hire to take care of the sheep for a short period of time. So if a shepherd needed to go into the city to visit family or whatever he needed to go for, and he didn't want to take his whole flock with him, he would hire someone to watch those sheep for the days that he would be gone. And so that person was referred to as a hireling. Now, the main difference between a shepherd and a hireling is first, the sheep don't belong to the hireling. They belong to the shepherd. And the hireling really had no love or personal connection with the sheep like the shepherd did. And the ultimate result of not owning the sheep and not having that personal love and connection with the sheep is that the hireling, he doesn't care for the sheep. The shepherd cares greatly for the sheep, but the hireling doesn't. The hireling's doing this for money. You know, he cares about his paycheck. He doesn't care about these sheep. And so Jesus says, when the hireling sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. And this was a common thing. Jesus is saying, hey, you know, when they're that predator, that wolf is coming to destroy the sheep, me, the good shepherd, would die. The hireling, he sees that and says, I'm out of here. It's not worth it to me. I'm only getting paid 15 bucks an hour. I'm not dying for these guys. You know, that this is just, I do this for income. I don't have any love for these sheep. I don't have any relationship for these sheep. I don't have any care for these sheep. So when danger approaches and it's their life or my life, well, guess what? My life is the one that I'm going to protect and all these sheep can die. And so Jesus is bringing up this reality of the difference between the shepherd who loves and cares and is willing to die for the sheep versus the hireling who doesn't have any of those qualities. You know, it kind of be like the difference between a parent and a babysitter, especially a babysitter who doesn't know the kids, who doesn't have any relationship with the kids, and ultimately who doesn't love the kids. You're just in this bind, and you have to get out, and you don't, no one can take care of the kids. And you're probably like, you know, we're just going to go with some recommendation that we have, call this person, and have them come watch our kids. You know, and ultimately, your kids, they don't belong to the babysitter. They belong to you. And so the babysitter, they don't have any personal love relationship. They don't really have care for their kid, especially in comparison to you. And so, you know, if someone were to break into my house while I'm there, I'd do anything in my power. I'd die definitely without hesitation to protect my family. 
But if I was, you know, out and about and my kids were there just with, you know, a babysitter who didn't know them, who didn't love them, who didn't really care for them, and someone breaks into my house and they have the opportunity to run and get away or to stay and die, you know, they're not going to be probably like me who's like, there's no hesitation, I'm dying for these kids because I love and care for them so much. They might be thinking, sorry, kids, I'm out of here. You know, I mean, hopefully they wouldn't, but, you know, the reality is in place in that situation when you don't have any real care or love for those that you're overseeing and you're just doing it for the money and it's probably not going to be that much money, then maybe you don't have that. And that's what Jesus is ultimately bringing out here of the difference between the shepherd and the hireling. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, these religious leaders, they're not like me. They're not good shepherds. They're bad shepherds. Really, you would just say they're hirelings. They're not even in the category of shepherd because they don't do anything that shepherds really should do for the sheep. They don't care about them. They don't love them. They wouldn't die for them. Really, all they care about is themselves. And when that wolf comes, they're out of there. They're not going to give anything for you, the sheep. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus makes the same kind of you know, direct you know, assault on the religious leaders saying, hey, they just want to steal, kill, and destroy you. You know, that's their heart. They want to take from you the sheep. They are not willing to give and sacrifice for the sheep. So Jesus is the good shepherd because he loves the sheep so much that he's willing to lay down his life for them, even though no one can take that life, versus the religious leaders who are bad shepherds because they do not love the sheep. They will not lay down their life for them. Well, now that we've looked at the contrast of the main reason why Jesus is a good shepherd, the main reason why the religious leaders are not, we're going to answer the question, who are Jesus' sheep? And in verse 16, Jesus shares something that's very important for us to understand about that. He says this, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Notice what Jesus says here. Hey, I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. Now, something important to understand in this whole illustration that Jesus has started in the beginning of chapter 10 to now, the sheepfold is the nation of Israel. The, the, the listeners would be very aware of that. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these different references to God being the shepherd of the nation of Israel. And so as Jesus is giving this illustration, they recognize the sheep are us Jewish people, us Israelites. And, and God is the shepherd, and Jesus is saying that he is the shepherd, so he's declaring himself to be God. So, so people are starting to connect those things together, but then Jesus goes and says something they would have never thought possible, says something that they would have maybe been shocked by. He says, hey guys, I got other sheep that are not a part of the sheepfold, that are not a part of the nation of Israel. What Jesus is saying is, I got sheep that are Gentiles. And this is so wonderful for you and me, because guess what? Probably everybody in this room are Gentiles. And this is what Jesus is saying here. It's like, hey, I have other sheep that are going to be mine, that I'm going to be the good shepherd to, that I'm going to save, that are apart from the sheepfold of Israel, that aren't Jews, but are actually Gentiles. And as you know, we saw going through the book of Acts, you know, this was something that was just very far from the thinking of Jews in that day. And Jesus is starting to prepare them for the reality that I didn't just come for the nation of Israel. I'm not just giving my life for the nation of Israel. I've come to give my life for everyone. 
And all who call on my name, all who put their trust in me, all who will accept me as their savior and good shepherd, I will be that shepherd to them. I will give them eternal life. Jesus goes on to say, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You know, this is something that would have been so hard for them in that time for Jews to think Gentiles can be a part of, you know, the family of God and be accepted by God. But, you know, in our day today, we realize there is one flock. Anybody who puts their trust in Jesus is ultimately in the one flock of God, or we refer to it maybe as the body of Christ. It's a big group of people. But the reality is, you know, we kind of dwell in different sheepfolds. Kind of like the Jews were in this sheepfold, the Gentiles were in that sheepfold, and Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to have one big flock, and I'm going to be the one shepherd to them all. And our problem is that we sometimes come to this conclusion that only the, the true sheep, the really saved sheep, hopefully we don't go that far, maybe the, the better sheep, they all are in this sheepfold. And we like our sheepfold, we, we design our sheepfold this certain way, we like the music of this sheepfold, and the teaching of this sheepfold, and, and the priorities of this sheepfold, and, and this is really the only place that I even want to hang out with other sheep, because the sheepfold from, from here, you know, they kind of listen to older style, or different style, or, or they're, they're, you know, more in this and that, or they have this priority that's different, and, and I don't even want to be with them. And we miss the reality that, hey, we're all part of one flock. And I think one of the problems that we have is that we emphasize too much our sheepfold and the differences of it instead of the shepherd, Jesus himself. See, Jesus is bringing out, hey, there's one shepherd to this big flock, and when we make Jesus the center, when we make Jesus the focus, all of a sudden we start to recognize, you know what, there are so many people that would agree to the majors of the scriptures that we know truly are believers in Jesus Christ, and there's minors that we differ in, and you know what, who cares? We have the ultimate shepherd, and these minors shouldn't be things that should keep us from any type of unity or relationship that, hey, this is a big flock, and we start to see how big it is when we recognize, yeah, there are different sheepfolds, and I think God has designed it that way because different people get benefited and blessed in certain sheepfolds versus other sheepfolds or denominations or whatever you want to say. But at the end of the day, we have one flock, and Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to bring in Gentiles. And the Jews have been like, what? And so here's, you know, I'm going to bring in, you know, this group from this denomination. And some people are thinking, no way, that can't be. You know, they're too charismatic or they're too this or that. No, they love me. They believe in me. We're all part of this one sheepfold. You know, from every tribe, tongue, and nation in heaven, there's going to be people. And I think maybe we'll be surprised at some of those people who are there because we're so focused on the minor differences we have here instead of, hey, you know what? Let's get the big picture and try to reach the world for the glory of Jesus. William Barclay wrote this. The unity comes from the fact that not all sheep are forced into one fold, but that they all hear, answer, and obey one shepherd. It is not ecclesiastical unity. It's a unity of loyalty to Jesus. When he's the focus, you know, that's what's important. When we really stay with Jesus being that, we kind of, lose sight of maybe some of the minor things that, that get in the way sometimes. Those who put their trust in Jesus and accept Him as their shepherd and Savior, those are the ones who ultimately are His sheep. Now this is interesting because many of the religious leaders, they would say, I'm a sheep because of my heritage. I'm a descendant of Abraham. You know, that makes me the sheep. And Jesus is saying, well, actually, 
my sheep, the one that I am the good shepherd to, are the ones who believe in me. If you don't want me as your shepherd, fine, then you won't be in my sheepfold. You can reject the shepherd, but don't expect to be in the sheepfold of God. And so Jesus, as he already says, I'm the door, I'm the only way. So if you're willing to make me your shepherd, then you can be my sheep. But if you're not, then ultimately you won't. Well, let's see how people respond to these two very bold statements. I am the door. I'm the only way to be saved. I am the good shepherd. And especially the contrast he's making to the religious leaders. We're going to see two different responses in verses 19 through 21. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So once again, Jesus causes division among these religious leaders. It happened as the blind man was healed at the beginning, and some were saying, well, Jesus couldn't have done this, and the blind man says, hey, you know, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And there was this kind of division of some saying, surely someone with this kind of power can't be what these religious leaders are claiming he is, this horrible sinner. And now they go from calling him a horrible sinner to notice the same group has something similar to say. They say, he is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Guys, Jesus is just a demon-possessed madman. You know, why are you listening to any of the words he's saying? Surely his words are not something that you should take and think about and ponder. He's just some madman who's demon-possessed that you should just ignore. That's their view of this. But you know what? When you examine the words of Jesus, when you examine the deeds of Jesus, when you examine the effect that Jesus had on the people that he influenced around him, you really wouldn't come to the conclusion that he's a madman who was demon-possessed. You know, the words of Jesus were not the words of a madman. They were words full of grace and truth and sanity. That The deeds of Jesus were not the deeds of a madman. They were completely unselfish and loving, and the effect that Jesus has were not the effect of a madman. He changed millions for the good. So this first group is, hey, you know, Jesus is a madman, demon-possessed person. Why in the world do you listen to him? But a second group has a different view of Jesus and what he just said. They said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now remember, this is all following suit of John chapter 9 and the miracle of what Jesus did for this blind man and the interrogation of the blind man and all that's transpiring. It's all the same day. It's all happening. And so this is kind of the, the culmination of that. And they're like, well, wait a second. I don't believe that Jesus could be demon-possessed. And here's my main reason why. A demon is not going to heal and probably can't even heal a blind man. And so we know that Jesus did this for this guy, so surely he can't be demon-possessed. And this is a good conclusion, because Jesus wasn't demon-possessed. He wasn't a madman. These guys come to a right conclusion about this aspect of Jesus. But the problem is, as we continue on through the Gospels, we realize that more and more of the religious leaders come to a place of rejecting Jesus for who he really is. And here's the problem. Yeah, they understand Jesus isn't demon-possessed. But have they taken the step to say, but Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus is the Savior. But Jesus is the Good Shepherd. You know, today there are a lot of people who say all sorts of horrible things about Jesus. And there are many who would step back and say, well, wait a second, I don't believe that. Jesus was a good person. I won't conclude that he's this or this. 
But the problem is they don't take the next step that they need to take and, and leave the fact that he's just a good person to say, no, 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 he is the Savior. He is God. He is the only way to salvation. He is the one that I have to put my trust in. And so they'll be like this group and they'll say, well, I don't think that bad thing about Jesus, but I also don't believe the truth about Jesus. I also haven't accepted who he really is. And so you might think, well, they're so much closer to being saved. And that might be somewhat true, but the bottom line is they're still not saved. You know, you have the the group that's calling him the madman, demon-possessed, and then you have the group that's saying, well, he's not demon-possessed, but he's also not the Messiah. Well, guess what? Both those groups are going to hell because only those who accept Jesus for who he is are ultimately going to be saved and have him as their good shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd. The main reason why is because he willingly lays down his life for the sheep. Nobody could take it from him but he has the power to lay it down, but also the power to rise himself from the dead, which he did. So whenever you think about Jesus' death on the cross, remember it's not the tragic story of a helpless victim. Instead, it's a tremendous story of a voluntary victor. And that truth makes what Jesus did for us on the cross all the more amazing, all the more powerful, because he willingly went through something he could have stopped. And I want you to think about that for yourself. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I'd be willing to go through this. And then when it's super difficult and super hard, and maybe you say, you know, I'd be beaten for that person. And all of a sudden you're starting to get whipped. And if you could stop it, how much would you endure before you finally said, enough, I'm done. I'm not going to continue. And I'm so grateful that Jesus, even though he had the power at any moment to say, you know what, it's not worth it. This is so much more difficult than I thought. My love for these people is great, but not this great. I'm just going to end it right here. I'm not going to give my life for them. I am so grateful that even though he could have stopped it, he chose not to because he loves you and he loves me that much. So Jesus doesn't just have to be the good shepherd, which he is. He can also be your good shepherd. You know, that's like when you see David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23, it's a personal psalm of the recognition that God is my good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. That's a reality of who he is. That's why he declares that in one of his I am statements. But he's only going to be your good shepherd if you make a choice to believe in him. You make a choice to put your trust in who he is and ask him to forgive you of your sin. Because until that point in time, he's just the good shepherd but he's not yours. And you don't get the benefit of the good shepherd in your life until you make that choice to accept him. Let's pray.